0: Stay tuned now for Byline Mendocino. Mendocino County. This is Alicia Bales. I am live in the MCOE studio and today it is Byline Mendocino, your biweekly local media roundtable. Today on Byline Mendocino, we'll get the latest from two local reporters about stories they are following in the county. And in the second half of the show, we'll talk with Lily Jamali and of the, of the California report and Aaron Glance of NPR's California desk all about PG&E. Lily Jamali has just come out with a a shocking investigative report about PG&E's progress on compensating the fire victims from um, from the Fire Victim Trust, and found out that while the administrators from the trust are paying themselves millions of dollars, uh, hardly any of the fire victims have seen a dime. So we're going to talk with Lily Jamali about that report, and then Aaron Glance is going to tell us about a ground-truthing project uh, looking at the state of PG&E's power lines in the most at-risk fire areas, and how you can participate and make sure there aren't any more fire victims this fire season but first i am very pleased to have in the studio kate maxwell the uh, co-founder and producer er, publisher of the mendocino voice producer that's that's radio talk but uh, kate is a, the publisher of the mendocino voice and on the phone we have frank hartzell hey frank he is um a f- Freelance reporter from Fort Bragg who writes for the Mendocino Voice and Mendocino Real Estate Magazine, among other publications. With a long history in investigative journalism and local reporting, many years at papers across California, including over a decade at the Fort Bragg Advocate News. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being the round table this morning.
1: Welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks. And Kate, are you you with us here? I am. In person, live in the studio. So um, both of you have... What I thought were kind of three super significant local headlines for the, for the week. Um, Frank, you wrote about, uh, South Coast Organizing for Radical Equities score and their request for an audit of the sheriff's department. And you've also written this week about a new state bill, SB 231, in Westport that would uh, that would transfer ownership of 172 acres of uh, coastline along the uh, along Highway 1 to um, a consortium of tribes. Coyote Valley, Sherwood Valley, and Round Valley Indian tribes. Um and, and these stories uh we haven't heard a whole lot about I will mean, Sarah Wright just did a report for KZYX News on the on the score audit request. But the SB two thirty one, these are huge, huge happenings here in the county. So let's start with you, Frank. And Kate, you wrote a um about khadijah britain and the mural that was dedicated last night in fact you live streamed the entire event at at mendovoice.com so these are the topics I'd, i'd like to hear from you about as we start but then i'm also interested in um what other stories you're following across the county uh at the moment so frank let's start with you can you can you bring us up to date about the the sheriff's department audit and your reporting on that
1: Um, well, can we start with the, uh, with the, uh, Indian tribes and the, um because I find I had a couple of stories this week about the ocean that uh, I think in the past would have been unthinkable. Uh, one of these is, to get, is a huge piece of public land that's to be given away by the state, and in the other story I wrote uh, is about wind energy and uh, large-scale industrial development is planned in the ocean. Uh, these stories, you know, show to me the values that once seemed absolute do change. Uh, the Native tribes could be much better stewards of land if given to them, and uh, that's, this is a story about the uh, 172 Acres, including Blues Beach and the Vista Point, uh, that's just right next to Pacific Star. There being given to a tribal nonprofit. Uh, if, in fact, the bill proposed by Senator McGuire passed, and it had uh, so far just a fourteen to zero vote in committee, is the is the threat of global warming such that it's worth putting giant wind turbines out in the ocean? Uh, the, at One time, uh, development in the ocean was, was off limits. Uh, I think it's a, an interesting thing that. Um, Nobody in, in local government has yet uh, gotten into these issues, uh, and it would certainly benefit from more involvement of local people and local government. Uh, developers are interested in Mendocino County's wind resource, and this story about the about the uh, tribes is is fascinating because what else could happen? What other things could be given away? I mean, this land all once belonged to them and has tremendous resources all along the ocean. Any of us that have hiked down there know, and uh, I find it fascinating.
0: Well, not everybody in Westport is happy about this proposal,
1: right? No, no, there's, there's, there definitely were, uh, the story had quite a few different voices, and it'll be interesting to see as it goes along how that develops. Uh, the... Um, um, the land is is, is absolutely uh, beautiful, and uh, it's, it's like a mini Lost Coast there. I don't know if, how many people have have hiked that area. There, Blues Beach is one of the most heavily used areas. that we get just past there into the other part of this. There's a tremendous uh, resource that natives could use for food gathering, and that a lot of people use for fishing, and a lot of people love it. And at one time, as I said, you know, uh, giving away any part of the California coast would have been unthinkable, but. Uh, it's being thought about now, and it has uh, people on both sides. So I think it's a very interesting issue.
0: Well, and how did we get here? Who, can you talk about SB 231 and what, um, how we got to the point where there's a state bill that could actually grant property ownership along the coast to a, a collection of <clears throat> tribes? For I guess it's for traditional uses, right?
1: Uh, well, they would use it for whatever they uh, wish to use it for. This, uh, the, tri- the, the reason they gave it to a tribal non-profit instead of directly to the three tribes is, is somehow the... Uh uh, Senator Mike McGuire explained to me that that's not uh, legal. You can't give money, uh, I mean, land to tribes. Uh, it has to be given to a nonprofit, and that's something they're endeavoring to change uh, in a separate process. I guess. Ah, interesting. But I only heard I only heard about this uh, from somebody in the area. Uh, it really wasn't announced. And I contacted uh, uh, Senator McGuire, and he he said he's willing to talk to anybody about it. But I think it's. Uh, uh, It's fascinating that this would emerge, that we would do solve this problem in this way. It belongs to Caltrans as opposed to state parks, and people drive on Blues Beach, and there's some other issues of what to do with the garbage and such. Nearby, on Seaside Beach, which is a a favorite locally, that is run by the uh, land trust, and uh, that uh, also is out of state parks and run in a different way. So. uh, not all beaches are state park beaches, although we're all so familiar with so many of the beautiful state park beaches. And um, some people say, well, maybe this should go to state parks. And others say, no, this is terrific. This is going to the tribes. They're the ones that had it originally. So you'll hear both perspectives and uh, hope to follow up on it as we go.
0: There was a petition filed, or a petition signatures gathered by the Westport Municipal Advisory Council. Is that, is that right?
1: Uh, just one member of the council had petitioned, another member had his own petition. I've heard from uh, people, uh, native people outside of the area that read the story and uh, are interested in it. And uh, uh, I was provided another p- petition that uh, is going around this a little bit easier that goes directly to Senator McGuire that's in favor of it. So you have petition against uh, the petition in favor, and uh, uh, there's one at the Westport store that Thad Van Buren uh, was gathering that a lot of local people signed. So there's a lot of interest in it uh, in the Westport area. Uh, it's called Westport it's you know sort of in between Fort Bragg and Westport, but it's it's considered part of the Westport Municipal Advisory mm-hmm. Council's domain, so it's referred to as Westport. But uh, the coast and, and all of the ocean belongs to all of us, and uh, I've always thought that uh, you know when I first met. Uh, Kate and Adrian were uh, was first talking to them. I told them I, I would love to have a, a bureau that would just all be covered with the ocean. Just everything about the ocean should be local news. Everything involves us. Uh, uh, everything is of uh, interest from the flotsam to the starfish. And uh, and uh, fortunately, they've been doing that uh, uh, lately. Um, with a lot of Lana's reporting, right? Um, Lana Cohen. But uh, there, there's so much more, and it's—I think it would be great if it was, it was permanent because the, uh, the uh, just. This, uh, a tremendous amount of things happening in the ocean that affect every one of us, and there's a whole cast of people out there. You know, like I said, somebody just told me about this, but people that love the ocean—from fishermen to gatherers to biologists—and all but different perspectives—and we should hear about it because our life literally depends on the ocean. And something like this wind energy proposal, also—you know—how does that uh, how does that affect us, and uh, and can we change it if we got more involved? And how, how did we drift off from it? Uh, Fifteen years ago, I covered wave energy for the Advocate. And the town was tremendously involved in it, uh, but this process, uh, Humboldt, is, is tremendously involved, and Mendocino has no involvement at all. Mm. So it's interesting how times change. Uh, well, let's Humboldt ask A l- e- lot of things with alternative energy, <laughs> and we're not really doing that, even though we have now, uh, either, uh, with uh, Sonoma Clean Power, they'd be willing to, to help and to help us get into more forms of alternative energy, be they solar or land-based wind or whatever. Uh, but we're not utilizing that, really.
0: Well, let's ask Kate Maxwell. She's here in the studio. What do you think about an ocean
2: bureau for the Mendocino boys? You know, we would love that. I think Frank (laughs) knows that Um, if there... You know, we have been trying to find ways that we can collaborate with other Pacific-based local newsrooms um, and see if moving forward, you know, a lot of these issues have a particular impact in Mendocino County, but people are thinking about them, whether or not they're kelp forests or um, wave energy or all the many different things about the ocean that Frank mentioned.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a big subject. In all ways. Um, And blue. And blue. But the other thing that's a big subject by way of our transition into your coverage this week, Kate, is is the advocacy and organizing of local tribes in our area. They are becoming, over time, much more outspoken. um, And leaders in the community for things like uh, stewardship of the coast and um, also, in this case, Inland um, for MMIW and for an end to violence in their communities. Can you talk about what happened last night and this week on State Street in Ukiah?
2: Yeah, so last night was the unveiling ceremony for the uh, MMIW mural that began on Monday. And that was um, something put together by the Ukiah Valley Youth Leadership Coalition. Uh, the group of young people here in the Ukiah Valley decided they wanted to do a series of murals and picked MMIW. Um, and that stands for? Missing and murdered indigenous women though the movement there's a lot of different acronyms um, a lot of times people now use MMIP to just represent um, all different genders but uh, they also selected to use the likeness of Khadijah Britain who disappeared in 2018 from Round Valley but um, not only to bring awareness to her case, but also as representative of the numerous missing and murdered people in Mendocino County and across the North Coast. And so um, yesterday was, a bunch of people from all over the county and actually across the region uh, coming together uh, to people who had been putting handprints on the mural all week. And there was a really moving ceremony with dancing and people speaking about how this has impacted them and what they'd like to see moving forward. Um, and I think, you know, as Frank said, one thing that has changed, this is clearly something that has been going on for centuries. But um, is the response, you know, I think one thing that was really significant and and a number of people mentioned throughout the week in this mural making process was um, the fact that, you know, this issue will now be facing North State Street in the county seat uh, for people to drive by and be faced with on a daily basis. And while a number of those missing and murdered indigenous people here in Mendocino County uh, are from the coast or from Round Valley, um, you know, bringing those issues to the county seat and having them be a daily reminder um, of ways that we need to do better here um, is something that I think was a really significant moment for people involved in this here.
0: There was a very um, powerful, well, the whole event last night was powerful. It was very well attended. There were hundreds of people there and a huge um dance happened throughout. I don't know, it was I left and it was I could still hear it from my house. So it went late into the night, I believe, but uh, which was kind of cool to hear indigenous songs and drumming kind of floating over the ukiah Valley uh, for for hours last night. But um there was a moment when the youth project participants who had come up with the idea and who had been the the artist's painting, the mural, um, named the names of missing and murdered Indigenous people from our county. And it was not a short list.
2: Yeah, you know, the list of names that they read last night, I believe included a number of people from across the North Coast in Northern California. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly one of the things that people in the MMIP movement have tried to highlight is that um, you know, there's often a lot of different law enforcement jurisdictions or um, governmental authority depending on sort of where these situations happen. And so actually, you know, adequate or comprehensive record keeping of exactly how many people um actually should be included in these lists is sort of part of the issue because you know even just with Khadijah Britton's case, uh she that involved Brown Valley Indian police for tribal police, uh, and then also subsequently the Sheriff's Office and subsequently the FBI, um now potentially the new investigative bureau- unit uh created at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, which was mentioned last night. So um, you know, certainly with Khadija, that means a lot of different agencies have been working on her case. But uh, for other people, that might mean that they fall through the cracks and are not even included on these lists per se.
0: Right. Did you have a sense of what the the, the sort of solutions were or are that people are putting forward from the community who uh, to try to stop something like Khadija Britain's disappearance?
2: You know, I think it's been really amazing to watch over the last several years, just the um, increased awareness and conversations and discussion of this, you know, beyond tribal communities. I think even just over the course of the week here in Ukiah, you know, um, it was a inter-tribal dance. People came from Lake County, um, you know, it was people of all ages coming by, waving, honking for support. And you know, you've seen that nationally where uh, this year President Biden made uh, May 5th MMIW Awareness Day. Um, but I think there has been a lot of intertribal collaboration around ways that access to um, intimate partner violence services could be improved, um, ways that people could, you know, I think finding more support for a variety of issues in the community. These are often really structural things, um, you know, or longstanding disparities that local tribes have had to deal with without necessarily access to a lot of resources for support or, you know, um, a lot of times services are located in Ukiah. So I think there's also, there's a lot of really exciting uh, community-based solutions that people are starting to talk about.
0: Great. All right. Well, let's turn back to Frank Hartzell. You had another story. And it's kind of interesting the way that these three stories this week kind of intersect um, because the sheriff, Sheriff Kendall, was at the event last night for Khadijah Britain. He grew up in in Round Valley, as we know, and um, grew up with members of Khadijah's family. Uh, and so spoke standing next to Ronnie Hostler, who is Khadijah's grandfather, um, who I guess was Sheriff Kendall's coach in high school. Um, so Sheriff Kendall made a statement about um, working together in order to solve this case and to bring closure and healing to Khadijah's family. Um, but earlier this week, Sheriff Kendall was before the board of supervisors. Um, Frank, do you want to tell us about um, your other headline from this week about score and the sheriff's and the, their request for an audit for the, for the sheriff's department?
1: Well, they had a, uh A meeting on it that was kind of surprising that supervisors, uh, other than, uh, Supervisor Williams, didn't seem too much. Into the whole thing, either up or down, um, and uh, there's a lot of information that was out there. That uh, you know, I found the uh, the audit that the Santa Clara County did, which when I had gone to a meeting, that score had they had shared with me, but it never got into the meeting. Um, but uh, these audits um, happen in in big cities, and they don't seem to uh, to happen in rural counties. Uh, so uh, this one didn't look like it uh, it got much leg from what happened at the meeting um, but uh... it's a very interesting subject because if you read the santa clara one there was a, a lot of uh, information that both sides could use uh... that's just what i found um, the the meeting was uh, you know a little bit contentious and, and as the article showed uh... Um, But uh, it's a a really interesting matter. uh, Several people brought up, well, shouldn't we audit all the departments? And uh, there was general agreement that they should. That uh, uh, Having an outside auditor would be a tremendous uh, benefit, but the sheriff felt targeted by it. And um, it was directed solely at his department. But maybe if there was a way that uh, we could have uh, more of these outside reviews uh, for all departments, uh, they might have been interested in it.
0: Well, South Coast Organizing for Radical Equity, this is a group coming out of Gualala Point Arena area. I know they've been organizing kind of workshops and, you know, social justice kind of online webinars and things for a while now in the county. Uh, this year, it's a group of young people. Do you know exactly what their, their request was here? Why do they want an audit and, and what do they want audited?
1: Well, the request was for a third-party audit to take a look at uh, why the uh, money was increasing year to year. And uh, Supervisor Williams, when he was looking at it, said that it could be uh, something that would result in more money for the sheriff's department because it would be understanding the money where it was being spent. Uh, and uh, you know, a situation the sheriff's is uh, they're definitely understaffed. So why is that, and, and how could that be remedied? Uh, but uh, they're. I wouldn't want to speak entirely for their perspective, but uh, they would be an interesting show, I think, in themselves. Um, what is what is score? A lot of people hadn't uh, weren't familiar with them if you read the media accounts and other things. So you um, know, we have we have these uh, these isolated regions: the South Coast and uh, Mendocino Coast and uh, Ukiah, and sometimes we don't know each other. And this brought everybody to you know to this particular issue from them. Um, so. Uh, we'll see where it goes, but it would, I think uh, we need more financial accountability in all the departments it would be uh, something the media should search and uh, that we should uh, have uh, or we should, we should look for.
0: And about the sheriff's response to it, um, I saw in your coverage that and heard this morning on Sarah Wright's coverage on KZYX um, that, he, that Sheriff Kendall used the word witch hunt several times. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like he was not... <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, not enthusiastic about his department being audited.
1: Uh, well, yes, he had several uh, points of contention. He said if they're going to prove an outside auditor, he wanted a, a voice in it. Uh, that they didn't want to just, uh, just have the supervisors pick that. And the sheriff is a is an independent entity. The sheriff is elected uh, separately. It's a little bit different, uh, along with the DA. So, brought some of that sort of thing up. And, uh, just questioning why it was being done. Uh, as I said, I wouldn't want to speak for them or for the sheriff myself, but, uh, there definitely was some contention there. And he felt it seemed like a witch hunt, it, uh, or it could have been. And, uh, so that was said. Um, I haven't heard Sarah's report. I'd like to listen to that. It would be interesting to hear too.
2: Yeah, it
0: was kind of the the live quote version of of your story because uh, you quoted a lot of the sheriff's comments and and she played it. So yeah, so uh. was, it was helpful. <laughs> Both stories were very very helpful. Um, and do you know how things were left at the board of soups? Um, what's the, what's the next step? Kind of what was the result of the presentation?
1: Uh, They formed a committee, and uh, they'll study it and probably bring it back to the board. So the committee was Supervisor Williams and Supervisor McGordy. Uh, Is it like a a board ad hoc? Yeah, ad hoc committee, right?
0: That is, I mean, you can set your watch by the board of supervisors setting up ad hoc committees these days, (laughs) it feels like.
1: It would be an interesting story to look into how many different ad hoc committees there are and what they actually accomplish, both on the board and different city councils. And I think it's, you know, when an issue is contentious, uh, we pull it aside and we do ad hoc committees, and sometimes we think we can solve it that way, but it doesn't necessarily... you know get solved that way you know the ad hoc committee doesn't have to report publicly where a standing committee does and uh... so you know you don't have to have a public attendance depending on i guess they can so um... You know, it's an interesting way of dealing with things, and is it effective? I think that would be a great story for somebody to do at some point.
0: Right? How do you how do you have transparency around an ad hoc committee, um, since they don't have to meet publicly? Uh, well, yeah, it would. It should be interesting to watch how this happens. Inter- really interesting that this group of young activists brought this issue to the board of supervisors, and we'll see where it goes from here.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll be following along, and we'll be following the ocean issues, and we got a lot of interesting stuff out there.
0: Well, and I hope that you come back to Byline to talk with us about more of your reporting. I want to thank you, Frank Hartzell, freelance reporter from Fort Bragg who writes for the Mendocino Voice and Mendocino Real Estate Magazine. We can find your coverage. How can we find your coverage?
1: Uh, my coverage? Well, um, I don't have a central place. It would be a kind of a nice thing to do. I used to, but uh, we just read the Mendocino Voice would be uh, the main way to do it. I, uh, you can also see, like, like you were saying, I've written quite a bit for the uh, Real Estate Magazine and uh, other things. I don't know. I guess uh, just a Google search with my name if you wanted to. <laughs> okay. Well, and thank also there's the
0: MendoVoice.com, and which is always a good idea to read Mendocino Voice. And Kate, thank you for being here. You're the publisher of the Mendocino Voice voice any kind of want to leave listeners with any last thoughts for the week
2: um i I think there is an interesting through line around generational shifts happening um and you know a lot of these things have been driven by younger people uh who want to see different things happen here in mendocino county in the future so
0: and we all know the youth is our future (laughs) <laughs> so thanks that that's a really good point is that we're, these shifts that we're sort of watching and thinking wow things are really changing around here well that's because the youth are finding their voice and they are leading the way so thanks thanks for having me thanks to both of you
1: Well, thanks for having us
0: and we are going to um shift gears now when we come back we'll be talking with lily jamali and aaron glance about the latest with pg&e stay tuned
2: Good news. I just got good news. All off the press, it's hitting the streets with bad delivery.
3: Making our headlines, it makes us seem quick. on the daily. And all of the people.
0: And welcome back. This is Byline Mendocino. I am Alicia Bales live in the MCO studio in Ukiah. You're listening to KZYX this Friday morning. And on the line with me now are Lily Jamali. There's a little bit of noise in the studio, but we are taking care of that. Uh, On the line with me is Lily Jamali, the co-host of KQED's California Report, also a correspondent for the newscast, and Aaron Glantz, who's the new senior investigations editor at NPR's California Newsroom. Good morning to you both.
3: Good morning. It's, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Oh, it's great to have you both. Um, and so Lily, uh, Lily Jamali is, as I said, the co-host of the California Report. So you're probably familiar with her, with her st- reporting because she comes on every morning, every weekday morning from, um, Ten minutes before the hour, so 7:50 and 8:50, uh, and she has an encyclopedic knowledge of the efforts to hold PG&E financially accountable for the catastrophic damage to fire survivors uh, from the fires in our in our region this last few years, as well as PG&E's bankruptcy proceedings, and the ins and outs of the Fire Victims Trust, and this month she published a jaw-dropping investigative report, which you can find at kqed.org, on the progress of the payouts to fire survivors. Fire Victims of the, the, the trust. And she writes, the vast majority of the 67,000 PGE fire victims included in the December 2019 settlement with the company have yet to see a dime. And that's as lawyers and administrators have been paid millions with the money coming directly from funds set aside to help survivors. So, Lily, can you start off by just telling us what the fire victims trust is and what you found out about um, this lopsided uh, prioritization of the administrators who are getting millions? of dollars and the fire victims who are getting almost nothing
4: sure well the fire victim trust was um, set up in uh, le- was set up last year and it was an outgrowth of the pg e bankruptcy settlement which you mentioned december 2019 i know a lot of fire survivors were following developments very closely at that time and the trust was set up to distribute what was then promised to be 13.5 billion dollars in compensation for 70,000 fire victims. And these are folks who lived through um, fires from 2015 to 2018. So in some cases, uh, for example, victims of the Butte fire have been waiting for six years for compensation so that they can rebuild their homes and move on with their lives. Um, And what we learned in our investigation was that in the first year, this trust spent more than $50 million on overhead. So these are administrators, claims processors, uh, lawyers for the trust itself, not um, lawyers for fire victims, but lawyers representing the trust in different forums like the bankruptcy court and the CPUC. And at the same time, so you got $51 million going out the door from fire victim funds that way, and just $7 million went to fire victims themselves in that first year. We should note that in this case, calendar year, we have seen the pace of payments pick up. So at this point, we know that about $250 million has gone to fire victims, but that's still just a tiny fraction of you know the amount that was promised. And the vast majority of people, as you mentioned, have not gotten a dime yet.
0: Well, um, as a county who was impacted, our community was impacted by the PG&E's negligence, um, are there fire victims here in Mendocino County who are going through this process? I believe
4: so. I mean, these are fires that there's actually, I think, about two dozen fires that are affected by this. So it would be the Butte fire, which I believe impacted Lake County primarily in 2015. 2017, there were a number of fires in the North Bay Firestorm, which did impact Mendocino County as well. And then 2018 would be the Camp Fire, which was in Butte Butte County itself. So in the Paradise region, which we all remember was the deadliest fire in our state history was also the most destructive. I mean, it basically leveled an entire town. Um, And so, absolutely, there are people affected in multiple California counties, including Mendocino.
0: And what, can you talk just a little bit about what the Fire Victims Trust, how it came to be? I know that it's a long and complicated story and that, you know, they've done a lot of reporting on it. But for people who uh, maybe are just hearing about this, and it's just mind-blowing, 70,000 people were victimized enough that they they deserve payments for their losses that is almost un, an unfathomable impact on our state
4: yeah it really is and the you know the story of how the fire trust came into existence the fire victim trust is is a complicated one but i think the sort of key timeframe to be looking at when we try to understand what took place here is the very last few months of 2019. So in September of that year, there was a separate settlement that was made between PG&E and insurance companies. But tucked into that, it wasn't technically just insurance companies. It was also holders of insurance claims. In other words, Wall Street hedge funds who had quietly purchased all of these claims earlier that year. And in fact, I spoke to a bankruptcy expert earlier that year who was like, you know, I'm seeing this, you know, very odd volume of claims being purchased. It's a lot earlier than common in a bankruptcy. And boy, was that call very prescient because just a couple months later, we saw this very large all cash settlement with the insurers and the hedge funds for $11 billion in cash. So when it came time to negotiate with fire victims, pg e I mean, I wasn't in, in the room, but, you know, I think we can kind of glean from that that they presented the situation uh, to be that they didn't have a lot of cash left. And so the current deal, uh, the and the deal that they ended up getting was a lot less cash. And then this very unusual situation, even by bankruptcy standards, which we've researched extensively, uh, that includes giving stock to this fire victim trust almost no precedents for that. One precedent that I can think of is the asbestos cases from several decades ago. But in that case, those companies stopped selling asbestos. You know, so then you have this very different situation where the company is kind of continuing on. They're saying that they're trying to clean up their act. And, you know, to be fair, we do see signs that they are, you know, in a that they have stepped up what they're trying to do. The impacts of that are still unclear and actually not all that encouraging, frankly, and Erin can talk about it, about that a little bit. But bottom line is that this idea that the fire victim trust would now hold almost a quarter of PG&E shares is honestly, it, it, it's, it's stunning. It's stunning and it, there's not a lot of precedence for it.
0: So they made sure that their stockholders and investors got money. Got cash. And then when turning toward the people whose lives they destroyed, they gave them stock.
4: They gave them part stock. And, you know, this is one of the most concerning things from a safety perspective. The idea that we would tether the compensation of fire victims to how this company performs. This is a troubled company with a a troubling risk profile uh, to a lot of investors, And um, we can see that in the stock price, which has languished for much of the last year, um, while the rest of the market has done, you know, fairly well. Um, It's just really interesting because I think traditionally utility companies, we think of them as a safe investment. You know, a lot of older people, retirees like to invest in utility stocks because they pay a dividend and they're, um, you know, great for people on a fixed income. But this is not your average utility. And I was really shocked talking with some of the attorneys who supported this deal last year who were trying to say to me, well, you know, PG&E, it's a utility. It's going to be a good investment. And the stock's only going to go up. And I'm like, guys, this is not your average utility. This is a really isolated case. I mean, I think California is right now, given what's going on with climate change, all of the utilities here have these unique challenges right now. But this is not you know the utility of the days of yore, where, you know, you're looking for something safe, and so you 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 make that kind of investment. This is something where um, fire survivors are now sort of seeing the impact. And by the way, you know, I I have to give fire survivors so much credit for calling these issues out last year. There are letters on the docket from February 2020 when they're calling these issues out, talking about the emotional trauma of this prospect of having to accept stock as part of their compensation through the trust. They were doing the work. They were doing the research and putting this in front of the judge, putting it out in the public, and we reported on what they were writing about. You know, this was an emotional issue for them, but it was also a practical issue People said, we don't want our compensation tethered to how this company performs. Right. So I give them so much credit for being way out front in calling these issues out. And unfortunately, the impact today is that for the very few people, there's about 565 people out of 70,000 who have had their claims fully processed and paid. Those people are just getting 30% of their claim because there's limited cash. There's this mound of 500 million shares of PGE that they have to somehow liquidate. And that can take a lot of time if you want to get a good return on that, uh, you know, on the price. So um, 30% is really not enough, especially when you look at what home building costs have, have come to in all, all kinds of regions mm-hmm. in the North State and in Mendocino. It's just gone through the roof yeah. because there's so much demand right now.
0: And land prices, uh, prices for labor, prices for materials are all through the roof. Certainly it would be difficult as an individual who's probably coming out of the worst experience they've ever had in their entire lives mm-hmm. and trying to rebuild uh, to to face this and be told that, oh, actually, we're only going to give you, a, a, you know, one out of three dollars that we owe you. Um, and yeah. you've had some response from fire victims they've taken your reporting and and they've um they've spoken out right
4: yeah um we have gotten quite a response from fire victims um you know just reaching out to us and expressing that they support the work that's that's being done right now and also you know this past weekend they held a rally in paradise about 100 people showed up and um just you know it was really remarkable to see that actually as someone who's been following this story for two and a half years the last time i can remember them doing that was just before the bankruptcy was official in january 2019 a lot of them gathered on the steps of the capitol in sacramento and you know it's been hard with the pandemic to get people physically in the same place but now that you know people are wearing masks and some of them are vaccinated it was really a powerful display of solidarity and um I think that, you know, I think that there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in all of this. This is hard, and I think sometimes reading these stories is hard, but I think it also, what I heard was hope. Um, There was this little girl who came with her mom, Erica uh, Lindsay is her name. She was seven years old when her family lost her house in the campfire, and she was crying as her mom was talking about how hard it's been to move on. But when I spoke to them later, um, she said, you know, I, I'm really happy right now. This is the first time I've ever gotten to participate in something like this. And her mom even was so heartened to see just sort of like this change in her emotion. And I think, you know, also there's, it's hard to deal with the trauma. I mean, there's so much trauma wrapped in to all of this. And I know that I talked to so many parents and kids over the last few weeks. I know that Sometimes it's hard to talk about these things, but having a rally, it sort of creates an opening for that conversation. And they think that that was a really positive development. I do also want to say we've spoken to the trust. Um, We've attempted to speak with the trust. They have not granted us an interview over the last month. We have tried numerous times, Um, but they did put out a video last week, um, essentially trying to say, you know, these are the challenges that we face. Um, you know that there is a bunch of stock in this trust we were kind of dealt this hand and what they're trying to do is communicate that they are sort of cognizant of the frustration but they also at the same time are signaling that there are going to be delays for the foreseeable future while they you know continue to set up this process um so i'm not seeing signs that this is going to immediately start you know getting better but there's hope that eventually it will get better and it will see more payments come down the line.
0: Yeah. Well, in the, the segment just before we were talking about a request by an activist group here in the county to audit the sheriff's department. Um, And obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, using transparency as a form of accountability, I mean, it's kind of a first step. So it doesn't seem like this trust to say the least has any transparency into how it's functioning and why they're spending $50 million on overhead.
4: Yeah, I heard that conversation, and I immediately was thinking the same thing. Um, yeah, I think that is one of the primary concerns. It's obviously everyone would like to have their money and all of it right now. That's number one. But I think accountability, transparency are really important. And I think I often hear various parties in this case refer to fire survivors in in a, in a way, like they don't really understand how this works, or they're not following this uh, closely. They are following this very closely, and they're very smart, and they are educating each other. and um, And I've been really blown away by how how involved and engaged they are. Um, I think it absolutely is something that they are following and. They, they want to see the numbers. They want to know who is getting all these millions of dollars. They want names. They want firms to be named. And actually, if you look at some of these filings from last year, when the trust was still trying to get this, you know, this gig, essentially, um, the 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 detail in those filings is remarkable. You know, you see every single firm. You see, you know, um, everything broken out line by line with dollar amounts it's much clearer this time they filed this annual report which started in july of last year um, not january and what we see there is just categories these broad categories it's really hard to understand and so what we tried to do was dig in pull things together from filings from hearings and from correspondence To say this is to our knowledge, to the best of our knowledge, where some of these dollars went.
0: All right. That is Lily Jamali. She is the co-host of KQED's California Report. And she, this month, published uh, an investigative report on the progress of the payouts of the Fire Victims Trust from PG&E. And found that um, most of the money by times 10 has gone to overhead and not to fire victims themselves. We're going to turn out to Aaron Glantz, who's also with us. Aaron is the new senior investigations editor at NPR's California Newsroom. And Aaron, you're working on a project to try to make sure there aren't more fire victims, that <laughs> this trust does not grow.
3: Well, we know that uh, Pacific Gas and Electric Company has started so many deadly fires in recent years i mean we've been talking about the campfire the deadliest fire in california history killed 84 people and the company ceo pled guilty to 84 counts of manslaughter it's literally a killer utility company um we have at the california newsroom developed a map where you can go online if you email us at fires at kqed.org That's fires at kqed.org. We will send you a copy of this map and you can look and see which power lines the State Public Utilities Commission and PG&E thinks are most at risk of starting a wildfire this year. And we have mapped those lines up against the areas that CAL FIRE and the PUC think are most prone to a wildfire in this incredibly hot, dry summer that we have ahead and so again uh you can email us at fires at kqed.org and we will send you that information alicia we can also get that up i think on the kzyx website later today so that people be able to go on your website and check it out um it's frightening honestly i mean you and i looked at this before alicia and if you live in willits you're looking at i mean it's like a spider web of dangerous power lines um and red area that's at extremely high risk of wildfire. Um, if you are in Southern Humboldt County, or you have friends up there uh, uh, in the Rio Dell area. This is the most dangerous power line in the entire state, according to the PUC and PG&E. Um, If you go uh, and you email us at fires at kqed.org, get a copy of the map or look at KZYX's website later today, another thing that's gonna be there are some guidelines of what to look for when you look up at the power lines. Are they safe? These are two really easy things to look for. There should be no tree branches in the power lines. So if you look up at the pole and you see a tree branch that's in the power lines, that is bad. Please take a picture of it and email it to us at fires at kqed.org, and we will share it with the regulators and with PG&E. The tree branches, any foliage is supposed to be no more than four feet from the power line. Also, trees are not supposed to be right up against the power poles. There is supposed to be, by state law, a 10-foot radius around the power pole so that if the tree catches fire, it does not catch the pole on fire and start a giant electric fire. And so, um, you know, if you email us at fires at KQED.org, you'll not only get that map that I'm talking about of the most dangerous power lines, many of which are in Mendocino County, unfortunately. And you will also get some guidelines of what to look for when you uh, look up at the lines.
0: So you're basically... um trying to get the word out about these two maps that you've overlaid the highest risk fire areas and the highest risk power lines you got a map from pg and e and from cal fire and you put them on top of each other and found out where these things overlap and unfortunately we do have one very high risk zone which is on three sides of Willits. so you're asking communities uh in this map which covers the whole state um to go out look take pictures And you're sharing that information with PG&E and trying to make sure, essentially ground-truthing or trying to keep them honest and and, um, push them to take care of the worst risk areas before fire season gets underway. Have I got it right? Right.
3: Yeah, the state regulators have slammed PG&E for not putting its maintenance resources in the areas that are actually at greatest risk of starting a wildfire. So like I live in San Francisco, it's pretty easy for PG&E to get a truck in front of my house in San Francisco. So guess what? They've been doing a lot of great work in San Francisco. Guess where the wildfires are likely to be? not in San Francisco. So, and do they so, have a um, budget
0: for for this uh, line hardening that we've heard is going to take 10 years? Is it like they've got all these funds so they're using them at the the sort of easiest places or how how's this going?
3: The basically the lines that you see on the map are from a corrective action plan that PG&E filed with the state and also from an audit from the state's wildfire safety division. PG First, the Wildfire Safety Division said, hey, you are not maintaining the right power lines. These are the most dangerous power lines. You should be maintaining them. Then then PG&E coughed up this report. They dumped it on us on a Friday afternoon right before we were about to publish our story. And it was incredibly disturbing. It was 99 more electric circuits, which was like the size of a neighborhood, where basically we should be afraid that it's going to start a wildfire. And so – um we, you know, like the state does not have the resources to watch every single one of these power lines and be sure in real time ahead of what could be one of the most deadly wildfire seasons in our history that that things are going right. And just as a journalist and as somebody who grew up in the state and lives in the state and wants to be able to breathe air and not have my house burned down, I. Um, It's important to recognize that yes, climate change is real. Yes, our summers are drier and hotter and more dangerous than ever. And yes, also many of these wildfires are preventable. Um, All of the fires that Lily was talking about earlier were started by PG&E equipment. If PG&E did a better job maintaining its equipment, we would have fewer fires what we've done here with this fire map that you can access uh, on KZYX's website later today and by emailing us at fires at kqed.org is to get a sense of, okay, which are the places that we have to focus on most critically, right? This is an old aging grid. It has a lot of problems. These lines that are on this map, they are the ones that we need to be paying closest attention to.
0: It's a triage. And, and Lily was talking about how fire survivors who, um, you know, are struggling with the trauma of just what, what they went through, uh, f- maybe found some sense of solace in taking action. And, and that's the sense that I get about, about this too. There is something that we can do. We don't have to sit here and wait for PG&E. Uh, the other thing you, you haven't mentioned yet, but that we all are very familiar with is shutting off our power lines because of the risk of them causing a catastrophic fire. So sitting there in the dark, waiting for PG&E to do something when they turn our power off. um, And these are not good choices.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, we don't need to live in this world where we have to choose between having like no electricity and having the entire state burned down, right? There are actually other options. And so what we're trying to do in our journalism is say, hey, if PG&E did a better job of Maybe the the whole grid is aging and it's going to take them forever to maintain everything, right? Hey, these are the 99 power lines that you said you would fix. You told the state you would fix these power lines. So if somebody is living in Willets and they go look on this map and they go over to that power line and they see that there are tree branches in that power line that PG&E told the state it would fix because it could start a wildfire, we want to raise our hand and use our voice as a radio network to point that out.
0: The other thing I'm hearing from locals when we talk about these issues on the air is that uh, they that there isn't... They have a lot of questions about the trees that are being cut because there is work going on on these lines. And, and I've heard stories about large redwoods being taken, about large old historic oaks being taken. And there seems to be a, a, a gray area about oversight for the kind of cutting that PG&E can do on these lines. Like they don't seem to be bound by environmental laws. Um, and you know, so people have a lot of questions about what's, what's going on out there.
3: Yeah, there's so many complicated issues here. Another area that we're investigating is something that is called Wackenstack. So I was talking earlier about how um, there's supposed to be a 10-foot perimeter around the pole so that the pole doesn't catch fire and sort of gigantic electrical wildfire. Um, One of the things that PG&E has gotten in trouble with in the Santa Cruz Mountains, in Napa and Sonoma counties is cutting down these trees that are in the uh, risk area, and then just putting them in a big pile and saying, hey, property owner, you clean this up. Well, technically PG&E is following the law here by clearing that narrow area around the pole, but guess what, if the fire starts somewhere else, now you have a giant pile of dead, dry wood, and you're gonna have a pyre. And so uh, some Napa County supervisors and the city of Santa Rosa have been calling attention to this. And uh, that's another issue that we're also investigating. That's probably extremely pertinent up in Mendo.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, we already have this kind of blight of standing dead trees from a timber practice called hack and squirt. So at least they come up with catchy names for killing trees and leaving them out there to burn. Um, Aaron Glantz and Lily Jamali, I want to thank you so much both for your reporting and for making sure that Mendocino County is a, aware of what's going on and the role that we can play in keeping ourselves safe and making sure uh, that we have a voice in demanding PG&E to do the right thing. Thanks, Alicia. Such a pleasure. And we will be posting um, those maps to kzyx.org later on today. This has been Alicia Bales and Byline Mendocino here on KZYX. Thanks again for listening and take care, y'all.